0: More and more states are locking in the maps that will be used as the basis for elections for the next decade. And the redistricting process has been interesting in that it hasn't played out the way many thought it might. We wanted to dig into this, so we caught up with Dr. Joshua Weichert. He is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Civic Engagement at Immaculata University. Very interesting conversation, give a listen. So to start, and this is just me personally, but everything I read and everything I heard let's say in the year leading up to the redistricting process, was really slanted towards the GOP, that this was going to be bad for Democrats. The GOP could draw a map that would get them plus 30 without working very hard. And now here we are. We're not finished yet with the redistricting process at the congressional level, but probably about two-thirds to 70% of the way there. And now those same people are kind of like, well, it looks like the Democrats could actually gain a few seats uh, just strictly from the redistricting process. I want to go to the origin. Was the original thought that just kind of the reflex of this is going to be great for the GOP and bad for the Democrats, just lazy punditry? It, to an extent.
1: Uh, the, the, the underlying things that made that prediction wrong were visible, but you'd have to you have to be actively looking for them, right? I mean, people have a tendency to believe that something that has happened in the past is going to continue into the future. And so since the GOP had been gaining in all these redistricting efforts over the last you know two redistricting cycles in the last two decades, the presumption was that was going to continue. And it's not so much that those people who took that take were wrong. It was that they were ignoring some other counter pressures that were pushing back against that. Um, The biggest of which being that there are really are only so many ways to sort of carve up a population in ways that distort electoral outcomes. And so as people are moving from rural areas into cities and larger towns, what was happening is that they were sort of running into a problem of, you know, that there's only so many ways to gerrymander, right? And one of the things that tends to be preserved in all mapping approaches, even in gerrymander maps, is that we don't want to break up municipalities and or counties unless we have to. And so as populations in towns and cities grow, you're, you're building larger and larger sort of indivisible units. And so that was cutting into it. Um, it was also the case that you had a little more judicial oversight of these maps and you know state courts that were getting more willing to say that partisan gerrymandering it was not OK under their own state constitutions. And when that comes up, the federal courts tend to not get involved. If it's states dealing with their own state constitutions, the federal courts tend to take a hands off policy. And then you just had sort of just like naked public opinion at work here, too, where more and more people are aware of gerrymandering and they don't like it. And that is actually not a very partisan position. Conservatives and liberals both dislike the idea of drawing maps that distort election outcomes. So you roll all that together and you end up with a very different picture.
0: I think uh, once again, reflexively, when people talk about gerrymandering, they automatically say it's Republicans that are doing it. But if you're going to be fair, Democrats have their Their states that they do it, too. And how much we were talking beforehand, how Maryland is a state that Democrats go. They turn the knob to 11 to get as much advantage as they can. But we've also seen, I think, in Illinois, New York, uh, two states that they seem to kind of follow that lead and went pretty close to uh, as extreme as possible. Uh, How much of a hand of, of the Democrats basically playing electoral hardball? do you think has a hand in this as well?
1: Yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're sort of rooting for the Democrats, you you like to see this, right? Because the Republican Party, it's true that gerrymandering, and this is true for time immemorial, that gerrymandering has not been a uniquely partisan issue. In other words, it's not the case that Republicans gerrymander more than Democrats or, or anything else. It's just more the fact that Republicans have taken a more systematic approach to it. And frankly, we're just more successful at it. And when we line up lists of the most gerrymandered states or the most irregular districts or things of that nature, it tends to be that Republicans seem to be doing it better than Democrats. So if you're a Democratic strategist or if you're in the DNC, you're kind of happy to see states like New York and Illinois now you know, taking the gloves off a little bit And trying to gerrymander themselves into a few extra seats. Now, if you're more in the if you're more in the camp of look, no one should be doing doing this, then this doesn't make you happy. And obviously, if you're a Republican, this doesn't make you happy either. But it is the case that there were some ways to draw the maps that were, you know, that 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 can create slightly more democratic leaning maps in New York and Illinois. But again, there too, though, you're still running into the same challenges of these are states that already had slight leads built into them anyway. And there's only so far you can push that.
0: I know some states have independent commissions. Uh, that I think is another thing that people didn't necessarily take into consideration. What do we know about the performance of them and how their maps have been received? By and large,
1: independent commissions are popular uh, in states where they exist. Voters are are happier with the outcomes. They are less concerned about political corruption. They're they're a good thing. And uh, obviously, there's varying degrees of independence within these commissions. Uh, a recent proposal uh, in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives to create an independent commission or a citizens commission in Pennsylvania had the one rather glaring flaw of being subject to approval by the Pennsylvania House and Senate, which takes away all that power, right? If it's the case that an independent, in air quotes, commission has its work back checked by a purely political body, then there's not a whole lot of point in having that citizens commission in the first place right? But in states where you have genuinely empowered independent commissions to draw districts, what we end up with is districts that are simply more cohesive and more coherent. Um, And, you know, this notion of proportionality is an important one, because as we hear debating around Pennsylvania's maps, both at the congressional level, but especially at the state level, one of the complaints uh, from uh, the Republican uh, majority leader in the House is that the map's are unfair that they represent a democratic gerrymander, which is an interesting perspective to take. In that the maps still favor Republican candidates, but the likely results are simply more balanced, which you know makes sense in a state where statewide votes tend to be relatively even. Like that, neither Pennsylvania is a very purple state, right? No, no, no party has a, a a built-in advantage in statewide races or in the total number of votes cast for state, house, and senate candidates. So you would expect that a, a fair map would be you know one where democrats and republicans are likely to get about the same number of seats so to argue that you know the the roughly 20 voted 20 seat advantage republicans enjoy out of the state house maps currently is somehow unfair because now it seems like it's going to break down more in the
0: 50-50 range it, that's a strange argument our independent commissions if we wanted to truly do this right and do this as down the middle as we could would and i don't know if it would be a national commission or 50 50- State commissions, but would that be the road we should go to to truly do this as uh, down the middle as possible?
1: Well, if you wanted to be, uh, there are two things. There are two approaches we could take that would actually be sort of like perfectly apolitical. One would be convert at least state legislatures. You couldn't do it for the federal Congress, but there's nothing preventing states, to, as far as I know, from Employing proportional representation in their in their elections in their legislatures, whereby voters would go in and vote for a party, not for a specific candidate. And basically, if a party got 25 percent of the votes in the election, they would get 25 percent of the seats. If they got 51 percent, they'd get 51 percent of the seats. And so proportional representation systems solve this problem because there are no there's no particular value in the districts. Like people can be elected to represent specific constituencies, but the actual voting, the actual process of electing doesn't require you to draw an electoral district, just a representational district. Um, That's that's a relatively radical solution. I I don't see many states, if any, ever adopting that, but it's an option, right? A more realistic option is to take redistricting out of the hands of people entirely. Uh, There are computational redistricting options where you can essentially tell the computer to draw, you know, in the case of Pennsylvania, 203 house districts of equal population and just tell the computer to don't break up any towns or counties and use the minimum linear distance to draw the districts, right? Because what you end up with then is a system where the computer is just trying to say, "What's the? How do I create 203 compact districts of identical size?" And there, it, it partisanship doesn't even factor into it because the computer doesn't know any better, right? Um, and those are again more aggressive options. And you can build in sort of like human supervision of some of these things as well. So it's not totally out there. It would be. It, it is still a good idea to have. 50 state level commissions, whereby those who are elected on these maps do not have any hand in making them. like that's the basic principle, right? In any other sphere of human activity, it would be a conflict of interest for you or I to get involved in a decision like this because we are invested in it. But for some reason, when it comes to legislative redistricting, we tend to leave it in the hands of legislators. And even when they're not drawing their own districts, if they're drawing them on behalf of other members of their party, the same kind of corruption exists or the potential for it. So there's good there's good incentives and good, good government reasons to avoid this process in the first place.
0: We talked about Democrats playing more hardball with this. Is that what it will take to get a more apolitical approach to this, that all of a sudden, if the GOP feels that they don't have the complete uh, upper hand in this and we're kind of fighting at this extreme partisan level, that that would be maybe the the detente that everybody kind of takes a step back and says, all right, you know what? We're all throwing money at lawyers and maybe we're better off just kind of Doing it down the middle like this. Is that a little too kumbaya or could we see that? You know, down not the all
1: I, and in fact, I would say it, it's it's a, it's a kind of like shared cynicism that would fuel that. Right. <laughs> if everyone's afraid that they're going to get boxed out of the next round of redistricting and it's sort of a, a, a mutually assured destruction situation, then, yeah, absolutely. That will bring everyone back to a more, you know. A, a, a fair map is fair, and so therefore no one has anything particularly to gain or lose from it, and all of a sudden the incentive structures start pushing in all in the right directions, right, and it encourages parties to build their popularity at the state level, it encourages them to adopt more moderate policies rather than pandering to a base, because that's really the most corrosive thing about gerrymandering, um, is that it fuels polarization. If the only chance you have of losing an election is in the primary because you know that your seat has been gerrymandered to be safe in the general election, then you're going you're to focus your, all your policy proposals and all your behavior on primary voters. And primary voters tend to come from the extreme wings of the parties. Whereas if you have more competitive general election districts and more competitive seats overall, it nudges people towards the middle because they're worried about taking too extreme a stance in the primary because they know they're going to face a more moderate electorate in the general election. So there's a lot of virtue that comes out of having less gerrymandered, less polarizing, you know, less rigged districts.
0: You talked about where judges have stepped in and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been pro-democratic uh, uh, map in North Carolina, excuse me, a, this, the Supreme Court went against the GOP gerrymander in North Carolina. And I think we saw the same thing in Ohio. It seems like everything that's getting overturned at the state level or getting kicked back is the stuff that leaned GOP. Is this just the case that Democrats have better lawyers than the Republicans? Because I'm not hearing the same thing in New York or Illinois, at least not yet.
1: I, I think that's probably an artifact of the aggressive gerrymandering that was happening at the, in those states. And on top of that, we can you know sort of add some other states like Wisconsin into the mix as well, where you have a, a case where it was um, in 2018, I want to say, Uh, was the last time this uh, came up. Um, In Wisconsin, Democrats received, I think it was just over 50% of the votes for the Wisconsin State House, but received only one third of the seats. Like that's an an extreme gerrymander. And I think that courts are willing to accept that there are sort of natural variations in political geography, that some maps that do create disproportionate outcomes might just be the result not of, uh, you know, proactive distortion, but just because of the way populations tend to distribute. But in cases where that was not the case where the maps were being explicitly drawn to leverage as much as possible you know that gerrymander, those are the kind of cases and the kind of maps that are going to get kicked out first. And so that's I think that's probably why you're seeing that. If you start seeing a nationwide sort of you know push towards you know nonpartisan mapping, then you might start seeing more of these maps in New York and Illinois and some other places in Maryland that that starts to that that where in other words you might start seeing more pushback against you know democratic leaning maps
0: how key is this redistricting process when it comes to the 2022 midterms you know it's funny that when it was thought to be a gop bloodbath i heard how important this was and now all of a sudden that it's kind of 50, 50, maybe even slightly leaning Democrat. Now I'm hearing a lot of people say, well, you know, it's going to depend on the, the national mood and where the country is. And I agree with that. But it, all, it seems like this was given a lot of uh, credence when it was something leaning right. And now that it's, you know, up down the middle to leaning left, people seem to not think it's as important.
1: One thing that can happen is that when you get more competitive seats, which more more proportional maps tend to produce, it's not just that they sort of like, you know, lean more left or more right. It's that what you end up with is more competitive seats in both directions. And by definition, a competitive seat, right, advantages, no one in particular, you end up with an interesting situation where. In in an environment where maps are more proportional, things like the national mood and things like the unemployment rate or inflation or the COVID infection rate or whatever it might be, they start to matter a lot more because you have more seats that are genuinely up for grabs. In other words, the number of seats in which Joe Biden sort of narrowly won in 2020, you know, the, the more seats you have like that, the more it matters what people think of Joe Biden. Right, so you might have the, a, a and actually kind of a strange, you know, outcome or perverse, not not a perverse outcome, but like a not expected outcome where this could end up advantaging a lot of moderate Republicans who are running in in what are now swing seats. To the extent that maps matter, they are never determinative. Right, the mood of the electorate matters a lot more than maps ever will. Um, even in states where there are obvious partisan gerrymanders, you know, it is still the case that you have, you know, big swings based on, you know, the electoral headwinds or tailwinds. We saw this in, we saw this in 2018, right? You know, where the, the maps in 2018 were the same gerrymandered maps from 2016, 14, 12, you know, back through the last decade. And yet we still saw a substantial wave of Democratic candidates being successful in that midterm election in the first Trump uh, term, right? And so you're likely to see the same thing here, regardless of how the maps turn out. The the default tendency is still that there's gonna be a big pushback from the party that lost in the 2020 elections. So to the extent that these maps would have helped, um, Democrats or Republicans, I, I think the effect was likely to be minimal. But we have to keep in mind, too, that the effect of gerrymandered maps is essentially to protect incumbents. And so that's why you might actually end up seeing a bigger surge among GOP candidates in 2022 with a set of fairer maps. There are no hard and fast rules when it comes to elections. You know, every every district can be won and lost. Uh, What really matters is how these sort of disparate elements all come together in that given district.
0: And how much, at least during the Trump years, we saw... The suburbs, for the most part, swing wildly to the left, and we saw the rural areas swing wildly to the right. And how much does that play havoc with things when you've spent all this time carefully putting together a map that you, let's say, gerrymandered and you think is going to be ultimately successful, and then all of a sudden you're dealing with a different set of realities on the ground.
1: Yeah, that that's a major concern if you're if you're a mapper or someone who's trying to evaluate the maps. That this is really challenging because. Historically speaking, when people predict whether a district is going to lean left or lean right, there's two there's two different bits of data you can use. Right, you can either use uh, the the voting trends, in other words, just literally tally the results of recent elections and use that to predict how many Democratic voters or Republican voters there are, or you can go by registration advantage because those who are registered for a party are you know pretty reliable voters, and so if independents sort of split down the middle but you had a 10 point advantage for Republicans or Democrats, then that makes that a safe red or blue seat. The trouble you run into is that, first of all, election outcomes can swing pretty dramatically. You know, the electorate in 2022 is going to look very different than the electorate 2020 and 2018. And we know that party registration is very slow to change. You know, Republican voters who voted Democrat in the last couple of elections may or may not have switched their party registration and probably haven't. And likewise, Democrats who live in rural areas who were voting for Republican candidates probably haven't switched you. So you you end up with a situation where it's really hard to predict these things using the data that you have. And so it it leads to a lot of interesting sort of stories where people say, wow, how are we all caught wrong footed predicting this district or this state? Um, but the honest answer is that it predicting election uh, elections is hard business. It, it's nobody's got a crystal ball. And the data that you have is either sort of very slow to respond or responds faster than you can adapt for. And when you run into both those things at the same time, life gets really hard.
0: And it's interesting to me because there's so much focus, and I get it on the first midterm after these maps, like so 2022. But I think the thing maybe a lot of people, you know, that casually pay attention to this kind of forget is these things are locked in for 10, like this is a decade. So how much do you have to balance? Obviously, you want the advantage in the most tangible way, which is the next election, but also, all right, the trend of this area is doing X, and we have to kind of figure that by 2028, it's going to be really far X, so maybe we take a short-term loss for a long-term gain. I know that's not how U.S. politics usually works, but how much of a balancing act does there have to be when you're putting this together?
1: Yeah, first of all, excellent point about the the time horizon question on political decision making. Yes, Uh, almost every elected official you would ever run into or prospective candidate is thinking in the context of the next election day, whatever that is. And and usually not much for, you know, for better or worse. Um, It's it's true that the short term considerations like how does this impact 2022 is uppermost in our minds. It's also true that that may also be the last time that these maps are genuinely predictive, like to the extent that they are at all. Because two years after this, and I, I should, really shouldn't even say that, there's elections every year, but we focus on you know, the even year elections. Um, but two years from now, not only are the maps the same, but the demographic shifts that we've been seeing continue to occur, right? I mean, it's not like everybody picks up and moves on one day and then stays put for 10 years. There's a, a gradual drift. And so what happens is some of these districts that are swing districts now might become safer or or things that were safe might become swing districts just as time progresses, as time progresses, simply because we don't update the maps every couple of years. So it's hard to make longer term predictions about what the effect of the maps will be, except for these very, very macro factors. So looking at like the Pennsylvania House and Senate maps, first of all, because they're smaller districts uh, in terms of geographic area. Um, you know, but it, we can generally say that, OK, well, Republicans have enjoyed 10 good years on the last map at the, at the state legislative level. The next 10 years might be a little more risky for Republicans because they're now competing with you know less safe seats. Also, the fact that the new maps have compelled a lot of Repu- a lot of incumbent Republicans to have to run off against each other, which, again, is an artifact of that geographic shift, because if you have. Districts that are gerrymandered to capture, you know, pieces of towns and cities, but the people representing those towns and cities live out in in the countryside, out in the rural areas. As those districts begin to, you know, consolidate closer toward the urban areas, they end up encompassing a lot more of those rural areas. And so you end up with incumbents who are currently sitting in the House who end up in the same district geographically. And so it forces them to have to run off against each other. So, I'd say if you're looking at at least the state legislative maps, that's the biggest effect of this: is that it means you're going to have people who were previously in safe seats who now have to sort of cannibalize each other uh, because just just because of the way the lines have been redrawn.
0: And is ten years fair? I don't. when I I don't mean fair in either party direction. But is it a a good enough area where we only have to go through this every ten years? Would we be better served shorter? Would we be better served? Doing it for longer or is 10 about as good as we can probably get
1: the uh, the Constitution stays away from a lot of hard numbers, which is generally a good thing. Uh, like one of the one of the ways they screwed up was they said, you know, in the in the Seventh Amendment, you're entitled to a trial by jury, but only if the amount of issue and only if the amount of issue is worth more than twenty dollars. Because I guess nobody in the room knew about inflation, but you know, but the ten-year number actually does seem to work. Um, a census, as we experience every ten years, is an incredibly challenging undertaking. It's it's hard to do right, and the results of it are are hard to work with. Like this redistricting process, as we as we see, takes well over a year to complete. I think ten years is is just about right. Also, I think that, you know, as we spot demographic shifts over time, it seems like that that once per decade, you know, check in on where people are also seems to capture in real time what is usually a pretty slow process. You know, urbanization doesn't happen overnight or even within a couple of years. So it's it's a very long frame process. And for that that matter, suburbanization, when it happened, you know, took place over a span of decades. So I think every 10 years is just about right.